Man, I want to come around here more often. That was, a, that was, I think, the kindest introduction I ever have received. Um, and yes, as, as Pastor Dave mentioned, my name is Austin Glenn. Uh, I'm the lead pastor of King's Cross Church out in Farmington, uh, Utah. And King's Cross, uh, we're actually a five-month-old church plant. And so we're, we're, yeah, we're a baby, you know. Um, and, and so for anyone who's trying to figure out where that is, yeah, Lagoon is in Farmington, right? We're not too far from Lagoon. Um, but I actually met Dave two years ago. And uh, from the moment I met that guy, I was like, man, I'm like so inspired uh, by Dave, not only as a person, um, but as a pastor. When I'm thinking of somebody who uh, walks at the intersection of holiness and humility, it is Dave Nelson. That guy is incredible. And so he has been a gift to me. I've been inspired personally by Dave and by K2. And I just want to say it's a huge joy for me to be here because uh, for us, it's like, new church planners, and there are a few of us in this area, um, man, I feel like we're standing on the shoulders of giants like K2. You know, this is a church that has been here, that has been tilling hard soil, and has like paved the way for us to be a church in Farmington. And so my hats are off to y'all. Uh, I'm so thankful uh, to be here. And Dave called me, he called me earlier in July, and uh, he was telling me about this uh, Gotta Get You Into My Life series and I was like super excited about it because I think there's in this series, we're touching on this uh, single uh, Christian doctrine that's both beautiful and empowering, um, this doctrine of our union with Christ, right? When we trust in Jesus, our life is grafted into his and then his life is grafted into ours. And it, and it literally changes everything, right? It changes the way that we interact with ourselves in our own mental worlds, right? It changes the way that we interact with creation and our external worlds. It changes the way that we interact with our families and our neighbors and our coworkers, right? All of our friends. It, it literally changes everything. And, and I think one of the biggest changes that we see in our union with Christ is that our union with Christ changes our sense of purpose, Right before, before we come to know Jesus, we're running on this hamster wheel of life, trying to fit you know, square pegs into round holes, hoping to fill this gap that we sense within our heart, this sense of purpose. And we always have this inner echo in the back of our minds that's haunting us going, why am I actually doing this? Right? What's the point? Why am I spending so much time at work? Why does it really matter? Why am, I, why am I picking up these clothes off the floor again for the fifth time? And I'm gonna do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Like, why am I here and what is my purpose? And in the Bible, we see that when we place our trust in Jesus, we are reconciled to God and we actually discover what our purpose is. And here's the truth. All of us are made to be in relationship and partnership with God. Right? That is what our lives are about. And anything outside of that is going to leave you hopeless, helpless, and empty. And I think oftentimes as a church, we love to camp out on the relationship part, and that's huge, right? We should. This is the starting point. We must be in relationship with Christ. However, if we stop short at relationship, we're missing out on half of our created purpose, and so right now, there may be people in this room who can say, you know, I've been following Jesus 
for, for fill in the blank, one, two, five, 10, 15, 20 years, right? I read my Bible every day. I pray every day. I gather with the church every Saturday. I'm in a community group. And, and despite all of this, I still feel like my faith is sort of blasé, right? Like I, like I know that there's so much more to this, that, that, but I'm, I'm not able to get there. There's a sense of vibrancy that I'm missing out on, this thing that I see in scripture that I should be experiencing, and somehow I'm not. And so often I hear this, and my first thought is, are you stopping short at relationship, right? Or are you going that next step into partnership, we all have these devotional moments where, where we're in God's word, right? And the Holy Spirit just touches our hearts in a special way. And we feel this sense of thrill and the sense of wonder. But I've been a follower of Jesus for a while. And if I'm speaking honestly and, and being authentic, I can say, man, there are just as many times where I read my Bible because I know that I should, as there are, I read my Bible, I'm like, man, I just feel this thrill. And I think that's common for all of us. Right? But when we give ourselves to partnership with God, when we partner with him in the work that he is doing, expanding his kingdom on earth, we start to discover this sense of purpose that we were intended to have, right? the sense of purpose that was marred in the garden. And in our hearts, we'll find this new joy and this new thrill in the relationship that we so deeply cherish, and I know some of you are like, man, that sounds nice, right? But I know where this is going. I know what this means. This actually means that I need to tell people about Jesus. I don't want to do that, right? That's, that's awkward. It's kind of uncomfortable. You know, I, I, I remember a time where I was uh, back in Dallas. Uh, this, is, this is a while back. I was a seminary student kind of felt like a hot shot preparing for this new life of like vocational ministry. And I was out jogging one day and I actually used to jog despite contrary evidence now, but I was out jogging one day and I see, and this was long before we ever had any intention of being in Utah, but I see these um, LDS missionaries in the middle of the park. And I felt like the Lord had just kind of prompted me like, hey, go, go talk to them about Jesus, go share with them. And I'm like, ah, I don't know about that. Like, that's kind of weird. And so I'm like wrestling with it and I'm going back and I'm forth. And eventually I feel like I do what probably most of us would do in this situation. I just say, sorry, God, I'm going to ignore you and I'm going to keep running. And so I, I do that and I finish mile one and I feel like the Lord's like, hey man, go, go share Jesus with those guys. I'm like, hey, God, I've already, I've already made peace with my disobedience in this area. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing that, right? Like we've been over this. And so I, so I ignore it and I'm doing mile, mile two and then, you know, finish mile two. And I feel like the Lord's like, hey, those guys are still there. Go, go share Jesus with them. Fine, God. Like when I'm done running, if they're still sitting there in the middle of the park doing nothing, I will go and talk to them. And so I quickly made the mental move to change this from a three-mile run to a five-mile run. And at the end of five miles, I get done, and those guys are still there. Dang it, right? And so, so I walk up to them. I'm beet red. I'm sweaty. And I just vomit out, hi, my name is Austin. I'm a Christian. Augustine said our heart is restless unless we rest in Christ. It was just stone silent. Okay, bye. And I just walk away, Right? I was like, I walk away, I'm like, idiot, that was like the worst, like you didn't even share the gospel. Like you just quoted a dead theologian. Like, what are you doing? You know, and, and so then there's no redemption. That's the story. 
right? There was no like, hey, they came to Jesus later. And so it was just a terribly awkward moment. And the reality is if you're in this room and you're like, man, I want to be on mission. I want to be someone who's partnering with God, someone, someone who's living this out, but it's awkward. I wanna say, hey, you're, you're in good company. Me too, right? If you're going, man, I want to tap in to this greater sense of purpose that I know is there in Christ, but you think I don't know enough. I don't have enough faith. I'm gonna mess things up. I'm not good enough. I would say, hey, you're in good company. Me too, right? I'm right there with you. And what we're going to see in our text today or tonight is that we serve a God who delights in using regular people like you and me to accomplish a supernatural mission that will not fail, right? God uses regular people in a supernatural mission that will not fail. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, we're gonna be looking at Matthew chapter 16. That's Matthew chapter 16. We're gonna start with verse 13. And so Matthew 16, verse 13. And uh, here, the word of the Lord, it says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some said John the Baptist, others said Elijah, others said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And this is the word of the Lord, and we're thankful for it. And, and the first truth that we see in this text is that Jesus uses normal people for his mission, right? We don't have to be the most gifted. We don't have to be the most talented. We don't have to be the most pious or holy. We just have to be willing, right? And we see this truth primarily coming out of 16, uh, verses 17 and 18. But before we get there, it's helpful to know what's happened before this point in Matthew, right? Because you see in Matthew, we're kind of seeing at the climax of this first major movement, this first literary movement of the gospel of Matthew. But from chapter 417, all the way until 1620, Jesus and his disciples have been ministering in Galilee. And Jesus has been doing these miraculous things, right? He, he's, he's, pushing back the forces of darkness. He's bringing the kingdom of God and then he's demonstrating what it looks like as he's you know, casting out demons and he's restoring sight to the blind and he's bringing hearing to the deaf. He took control over the elements when he calmed the waves of the sea. He healed a paralytic man. A little girl died and he brought her back to life and people are beginning to wonder, who is this guy, right? Who is this guy who's doing all of these crazy things? And so Jesus takes his disciples all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. And then we're gonna talk about that later, um, but he takes them up to Caesarea Philippi and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? Peter jumps in, he says, well, the crowds kind of say that you're you know, John the Baptist. Some say that you might be Elijah. Some say that you might be a prophet. And then Jesus flips it and he goes, who, who do y'all say that I am? And Peter responds, he says, you are the Christ, 
the son of the living God. And Jesus pumped. He gets excited. He's like, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. This is amazing. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My father told you that. From now on, I'm calling you Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Right? And when we first hear that, we're like, yeah, of course. But man, if we're reading Matthew for the first time, and we get to this point, we're kind of sitting here going like, really? Like, you're, you're, you're picking Peter? Like, what about James or one of those sons of thunder, right? You're picking Peter? You really want this guy to be an instrumental part of building your church. Peter was a regular guy. He was a fisherman. He was married. At least um, scriptures say that he had a mother-in-law. I'm not sure how you get one of those unless you're married. I'm not sure if you'd want one. Uh, but, but he had one, right? And, and, and when Jesus called him to be a disciple, it wasn't because he had done anything noteworthy or outstanding. He was fishing with his brother. He was at work. And Jesus calls him to be a follower, and Peter was willing, and he came. And then we see during Peter's ministry, he was consistently the first guy to mess up. In Matthew 14, Peter's the guy who lacks faith. He goes from walking on the water to almost drowning because he lacks faith in Jesus. In Matthew 15, Peter's the guy who doesn't understand Jesus's teaching. In, in Matthew 16, after the text that we're looking at, Jesus actually calls him Satan, because Peter is obstructing Jesus's mission. And in Matthew 17, we have Peter, James, John. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah are there. They make this cameo appearance. And Peter's like, hey, y'all, I got this great idea. Let's build these guys some houses, right? And the audible voice of God interrupts Peter. The text says that while Peter was still talking, God the Father says, this is my beloved son. With him, I'm well pleased. Listen to him, right? Like, like, you know you're not doing super well when the audible voice of God comes down from heaven and interrupts you mid-sentence and says, hey, stop talking and listen, right? Shut your mouth. We get to the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 26, and we see that Peter denies Jesus. It's as bad as it gets, right? Peter was a nobody. He was a fisherman, always the first to make mistakes. And yet Jesus said, on this rock, on you, Peter, I will build my church. Peter, you're going to be a key leader in this massive global ministry of reconciliation. Not because of who you are, not because of what you do, but because I've chosen you to do it. And church, Jesus has chosen you, right? He has chosen you to carry out the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of advancing his kingdom, to making his glory known. Jesus has chosen you, not because you were like the last one on the bench. That was me in high school, right? The last one to get picked. He, Ephesians 1 says, before the foundations of the world, you were chosen. You are his 18. You are his first pick. And God delights in accomplishing his mission through unusual suspects. We see this all throughout the Bible, right? We see a barren woman named Sarah who is used to birth a nation. We see Moses, a man with a stutter who's set to speak to kings. We see David, the smallest of seven brothers who's gonna defeat a giant. This is the way our God works, right? God, God uses the willing and not the able and church be encouraged by that, right? Right? Don't, don't think that because you're a, you're a stay-at-home parent 
that God cannot use you in this mission, right? Who else is gonna reach the other people at story time on the libraries, on library days, right? Just, just because you work 50 to 60 hours a week, and I know what that's like. I've been there. You think, man, I don't have time for missions. Like, man, God has you on mission 50 to 60 hours a week in your office, right? Or maybe you think, I don't have enough faith. Look, that's okay. Peter didn't have enough faith either. He fell back in the water, right? Oh, I don't, I don't understand enough. I don't know enough. Jesus' teachings are confusing. Yeah, they were confusing for Peter too. He didn't always get it. Or you think, man, I've done, done some really bad things, right? I've done some terrible things. God wants to use other people. God can't use someone who's done what I have done. Peter denied Jesus in his most vulnerable moment as he's being beaten and tortured and murdered. He denies him. Doesn't get much worse than that. And here's the thing. God wants to use you if you will give yourself to that mission, right? If you would be a person who would share Jesus, who would share the gospel, God will unite your weak efforts with his power and you will see transformation in your spheres, in our cities, in our churches. And I know this seems like an impossible task, right? Like, like there's no way I can see myself being a part of global transformation. And that's because it's true. Like it is an impossible task, especially if we're on our own. But, but the mission, it's a supernatural mission. It, it goes beyond the scope of our natural abilities and God supernaturally works through us. And this is the, this is the second truth that we see in this text is that Jesus's mission is a supernatural mission. And I think we all gravitate towards this idea of a, of a supernatural mission, right? This is why movies like Avengers and Harry Potter and Star Wars pack out the theaters. There's something in us that longs to be a part of something great, right? We long to be a part of something that transcends the scope of our normal human ability. And when we're considering the mission of God, that is that, Right? This is something that transcends. This is the, the mission that will scratch the itch of our heart's deepest longings. The mission that transcends the scope of our normal human abilities. And it's not possible for us to do it on our own. Like if we're gonna succeed in this mission, we have to get God into our lives. That is the only way. This, this mission requires the supernatural empowerment of Jesus. This is what we see in our text, right? The gospel writer of Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he foreshadows something in this gospel that's going to occur later in Peter's life, right? And so to get that, we go back a little bit to Matthew chapter four, when Peter's first called, he was the first one called. And this is what the text says. It says, while walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, they were casting us in the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And so what we see in this text is that Peter is actually Simon. But all throughout the gospel of Matthew, he's referred to as Peter. And we're kind of like, why is that? Well, now in Matthew chapter 16, we see why. Jesus asks Peter who he was, and Peter responds, you are the Christ the son of the living God. This word Christ comes from the Greek term Christos. It means Messiah, 
right? Messiah means anointed one. In the Old Testament, the Messiah was the one that the people of Israel were waiting for. It was going to be this perfect and good king who would rule over the world in perfect love and justice and mercy and who would right all wrongs. And so when Peter is saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, he's saying, you're that guy, you're that king. So I'm going to submit my life to you. I'm going to submit my life to your rule and to your reign. But then Peter says that you're also the son of the living God. Peter uses this phrase, living God, as a designation from Jesus. This is a, this is a title in the Old Testament that was often referred to, used to refer to as uh, Yahweh, right? God proper. And so in this second statement about who Jesus is, Peter is confessing that this Messiah is more than just a human figure. He is someone who is uniquely the manifestation of God, the very agent of God who somehow participates in God's being. And as Messiah, he was the coming one who who would usher in the messianic age, who would transform this present order. But as the son of the living God, he was more than just a human. He was the manifestation of God's own self. He was God the son who came in the flesh to redeem his people. Now, this is quite the claim right? This is not a claim that you're going to come to on your own, right? In this one verse, uh, scholars say Matthew 16, 16 is the Christological high point of the whole gospel. We get the essence of who Jesus is. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is the king who will usher in a perfect kingdom. And at the same time, he's the creator who made it all. He is fully God, fully man, second person, the Trinity who condescended to this earth as God so that he could save it. It's a mind-blowing thing to say about somebody. It is a supernatural confession. And Jesus is so overjoyed at this confession, he shouts out, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter's confession was a supernatural confession. It was not a conclusion that Peter reached by his own works or effort. And this is what Jesus is saying by flesh and blood, right? Right? Now, Peter did place himself in the path of allurement. He was with Jesus. He got to know Jesus. And it was like, up until this point, he had all of these puzzle pieces as to who Jesus was. And in this one moment, God reveals it, puts it together, and he goes, oh, I see. This is who Jesus is. God opened his eyes to behold the truth about Jesus. And for some of you in this room, this might be the most pertinent application point of the entire sermon, right? Maybe you're sitting in this room and you have all these different puzzle pieces about who Jesus is. And maybe you grew up thinking, man, I think Jesus is this way. And you went to college and you took this comparative religions course. And they said, well, I think Jesus is this way. And you're trying to fit all of these pieces together. And maybe for you, the application needs to be a prayer that says, God, open my eyes to see who Jesus really is. Reveal to me the way that you did to Peter right? Your true identity. Give me the faith to know it and to believe it. Because every single one of us starts off spiritually dead. And in our sin, we are blind to see who Jesus is. This is our default mode. But God, by his grace, opens the blind eyes to see Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, we make this confession that Peter did, that that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Something supernatural happens in us. Our sins are forgiven. We are supernaturally credited with Jesus's righteousness. We go from being spiritually dead to being alive in Christ. We become indwelled by the very spirit of God who empowers us for this mission. He gives us a new identity in Christ. 
And and we see this happening right here with Peter. He goes from Simon to Peter. And Peter literally means rock, right? Jesus is saying, great job, Simon. From now on, I'm gonna call you rock and I'm gonna build my church. Simon uh, meant like he has heard or, or listen, right? It was an appropriate name for Peter. Peter went from listen up to the rock. He's like Dwayne Johnson, right? It's like, you know, this is a, this is a name change. This is an identity change. This is, a, this is the foreshadowing of a supernatural event that's going to happen in Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two, Peter's with the church, this fledgling church, and they're praying and the room gets filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Peter gets up and he preaches his very first sermon. And we see 3,000 people come to Christ. Later in chapter three, Jesus is walking over to a prayer gathering and somebody's asking him for money. He says, hey, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk and the man is healed. Right, the very next chapter, we see that Peter goes on to preach another gospel sermon. And this time, all of the leaders and officials are getting around him and they're, they're questioning him. And 5,000 people come to know Christ. Peter is being questioned. They lock him up. They throw him in jail. He gets released from prison and he goes and gathers with the church and he starts to pray. And you know what he prays for? He doesn't pray for protection. He doesn't pray for vindication. He prays for boldness to go out and share the gospel some more, right? This man who cowered before a little girl in front of a fire is now standing up to the leaders and the officials of this state, and he's proclaiming Jesus at the face of persecution. This is what happens when we trust in Jesus. We become transformed. We become new people. We become empowered. And in Acts, we see what Jesus meant when he told this regular, normal guy, Peter, that he was going to use him to build his church. And it's amazing and it's beautiful, right? And I think a lot of us hear that and you're like, oh yeah, like I I know that you're saying Peter was just a normal guy, but like, let's be honest, he was an apostle. Like that's kind of a big deal, right? He, He was kind of a big deal. I can't do what Peter did. And what I would say to you is Peter thought differently about you. Like, like you might think that about Peter, but Peter thought differently of you. When, when we read this letter that Peter writes to this dispersed church in, in, the, in the letter, uh, the epistle of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter the rock, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing to the church and he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And then later in verse nine, he goes on to explain what that that means. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's saying, hey, y'all, like y'all, y'all are rocks too right? Y'all are living stones supernaturally being built up as this beautiful thing called the church, and you are sent out to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. What a privilege. What an honor that we get to participate in that mission. God takes normal people, and he supernaturally opens their eyes to see who Jesus is. And when we, by faith, make this confession that Jesus is fully God, fully man, the one who died on the cross for our sins, we become supernaturally transformed and we are sent out 
And this is the primary means by which Jesus makes his appeal to the world, right? Second Corinthians chapter five tells us that the church is the primary means. He could have gotten a billboard in the sky and said, hey, y'all, I'm real. Here's a replay of what happened 2,000 years ago when my son died on the cross. I want you all to see. He said, no. God in his divine wisdom and sovereignty said, the best way for me to make my appeal to this broken and lost world is through my people. And so I will send them. I don't know if y'all have heard of the guy. Uh, his name is Zach Mirkrebs. I think we have a, a picture of him. There's a chance that you might've heard of him uh, back in February. Uh, Zach is a regular dude. Uh, he and I served together um, at a church in Colorado Springs like over a decade ago. He's married. He has a couple kiddos. Uh, you know, he does parachurch ministry in, in a school out in Kentucky. Um, but for all intents and purposes, this guy is just a regular dude, right? And, and, and maybe you didn't hear about Zach, but maybe you heard about this thing that happened back in February called the Asbury Revival. Did anyone hear about that? It's amazing, Right? It is amazing. In Wilmore, Kentucky, this small Christian school, Asbury, on February 8th, the students got together for this chapel. Uh, Zach is actually the guy who preached before this revival poured out. He preached about how, how we need to be God's love in action. And I'll be honest, I actually went back and listened to the sermon, right? It was no like Tim Keller, uh, Dave Nelson, like knockout, right? Like he, he actually texted his wife right after the sermon and said, latest stinker, be home soon, right? Like that's how he felt about his sermon. But it's crazy because God had supernatural intentions for Zach's very normal sermon. After the sermon, the students stuck around, compelled by this idea of being God's love in action. And they stopped and they sang this musical worship and the Holy Spirit poured himself out and they began to pray and they began to repent. This ordinary chapel in this ordinary school had this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Students didn't leave. They stayed. They kept worshiping. They kept repenting. People came to Jesus for the first time. There were reports of healings right? Soon, people from other schools and nearby counties felt drawn in, and two weeks later, they're still there praying and repenting and worshiping. And God used this very normal chapel service with this very normal guy who was willing, and God poured himself out into this normal people in a supernatural way. And church, I believe God can do that here too. Like, I firmly believe that. I really believe that here in Utah, God is preparing a people for a supernatural outpouring of his spirit to bring people into relationship with him, to bring reconciliation to a people who have never had that before. And I honestly and sincerely believe that we can be a part of it. Us, these normal, regular people can be used like Zach in a supernatural way. God's mission is supernatural because he supernaturally reveals Jesus to normal people and he supernaturally empowers them by transforming their identity and he supernaturally sends them out. But it's also a supernatural mission because it's not our mission, it's Jesus's mission, right? And this is the last thing that we see in this text. Verse 18, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so the last thing that I want us to see here is that Jesus's mission will not fail. It won't. And church, I hope you are assured of that. In that, I hope you find confidence in that. You've been called into the supernatural mission and it will not fail. Jesus is building his church. And we said that we are gonna go uh, to Caesarea Philippi, right? 
Uh, Caesarea Philippi, it was the northernmost part of the territory of Israel. It was this place that long before Jesus uh, was around, it was dedicated to the worship of Baal Gad, this false god of good fortune. Later, the Greeks came in, took over, built an altar to Pan, this, this false deity of fortune. There were caves and shrines set up over here for all these other pantheon of gods. 20 BC, King Herod built a temple there and dedicated it to Augustus Caesar, right? It was a place where people from Rome would go to worship the state and they would go and worship their emperor. And it was here amidst the interplay of this dark forces of paganism and the deification of the state and the emperor that Jesus looked at his disciples and said, on this rock, I'm building my church and it will not fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. People are worshiping false gods. They're seeking the good life through the worship of Pan or the state. And Jesus says, the good life is found in my kingdom, which is being expanded by my church and nothing will prevail against it. These forces of darkness will not prevail against it. And despite what you know, Dan Brown would say in the fiction novel, The Da Vinci Code, or other you know, uh, non-Christian religions might say, there has never been a time when the church wasn't. And this side of glory, there will never be a time when the church isn't. Jesus is marching his church forward and the world has benefited immensely from it, right? We see the liberation of the slave trade through Christians. We see the, the institution of mass education through Christians. We see hospitals being built up and propagated through Christians. The Lord has used the church to transform the world and he wants to continue to do it and he wants to do it through us if we will give ourselves to that mission. And church, I, I just wanna ask, what, like, can you imagine what it would look like if we were a people who said yes? Like, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna lean into the, the awkwardness. I'm gonna lean into the discomfort. I'm gonna lean into sharing the gospel even though it doesn't feel like something that's gonna go well for me, right? Like, I don't know exactly what that would look like, but if K2 or, or King's Cross would be a church who would say, yes, I'm gonna lean into that discomfort. I'm gonna share Jesus. I have a sneaking suspicion that it would look like revival, right? I have this sneaking suspicion that it would look like renewal, like, like addictions being broken, like families being mended, like people being reconciled to God in a way that has never happened in the state of Utah before. I believe that. Would you be a part of it? Church, let us pray to that end. Father, we come before you with thanksgiving and humility. We step back and we're just in awe and we're in wonder of you. Like who is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would care for him and who are we that you would call us to be a part of this global mission of reconciliation with an honor and a privilege that is God. And so we say, thank you. Lord, we pray with Peter that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would empower us and that we would be a people of boldness who lean into discomfort, who share the gospel when it's awkward. Would you do that in us? We rely on you. We depend on your grace. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.